Hello and welcome to the EMS Nation podcast. We're very excited to do a wrap up of CCTMC day one, and we have a distinguished set of colleagues uh, sitting at the round table, and we're going to go through the day's lectures, the excitement, the takeaways, and everything that you should know about day one, and obviously why you should attend future CCTMCs in the future. So first up, we have Mike Loria. Hey guys, my name is uh, Mike Loria. I'm a critical care flight paramedic at the Dartmouth program, currently a second year medical student. Hello guys, my name is Chris Fuligar. I am the current president of the Air Medical Physicians Association. I'm also the medical director of the Onondaga County Sheriff's Air One in Syracuse, New York. Hey guys, Bill Hinckley. I'm from University of Cincinnati. I'm a flight doc. I'm a uh, associate professor of emergency medicine, immediate past president of AMPA, and stoked to be here. Hey guys, Faison Arshad. Hopefully you know who I am by now, but nevertheless, Deputy EMS Medical Director in New Jersey State, also operate in the Hudson Valley of New York, and very excited to have assembled this crew. The first lecture was by none other than Russ McDonald, the opening general session. Now that I have your attention, task saturation and situational awareness. What do you guys think? Russ tore it up as he always does. Unstoppable. Dr. McDonald, for those who don't know, is a medical director at Orange, an outstanding lecture. I, I thought that his point that we need to be more situationally aware about our current level of situational awareness in critical scenarios was brilliant and absolutely right on. Yes, I kind of think that one of the interesting things was that when you are task saturated, that there's kind of an inversion of the mindset that you have to be in in order to be able to mitigate the situation that you're in at that time as well. Yeah, one of the things I, I really love about this conference is that you hear how people digest and repackage a lot of the information in these really awesome nuggets that you can really take home and work with. And I thought Dr. McDonald did a fantastic job with that. I think that we usually get away with, or most CRM courses just get away with mentioning, hey, you got to be aware. You have to be aware of the situation that's going on around you. But his deep dive into the cognitive science behind our cognitive blind spots and, and how we can um, actually prepare ourselves to be more aware of what's going on around us. The concepts he introduced in his situational awareness uh, checklist, so to speak, uh, things to think about, uh, I think was really great and uh, somewhat novel presentation of the material. I think it's, it's sort of a shame that a, a lot of folks in emergency medicine, EMS, critical care transport seem to be resistant to the use of the, the checklist and the cross-check. And it seems like Dr. McDonald doesn't have a lot of patience with the people and I think he's correct. The patient does not expect us to be too proud to refer to a checklist. They expect us to be like a pilot and to freaking get it right every time. And I think that Dr. McDonald also did a very good job at illustrating the parallels that there are between the situations that are incredibly difficult to master without these checklists. There are many things such as um, working in the nuclear power plant or being an airline pilot where there is no room for error. You really have to get it right the first time every time or there's going to be disastrous consequences and that's exactly what we do on a daily basis. So for those folks who are appropriately titillated by the intro to Dr. McDonald's talk, please check out at AMPA Docs on Twitter, A-M-P-A-D-O-C-S. 
because we did periscope this talk. It's going to be up for 24 hours. Otherwise, you can also catch it on Catch, K-A-T-C-H. The next talk, which was also live streamed on Periscope, was done by none other than one of our panel members, future doctor Michael Loria. Equanimity, puny, and parachuting, evolving concepts in optimizing recess performance. Yeah, nobody actually went to that talk. So. <laughs> the entire state of Nebraska actually watched it on live stream. We should move on to the next topic. Absolutely. Concur. Now, actually, um, I have to say that this was probably one of the best talks I have attended in my entire life. Dr. Loria consistently, and not just that he is sitting next to me at the moment, but he consistently delivers a, a product that connects with you at a level that uh, very few others do. And the illustrations as far as not just the content itself but also the stories and the way that he discusses the concepts behind the lectures were truly impressive and I came away from that not only with the knowledge but also with the emotion if you will that really helps to drive those points home. Mike I love the hashtag recess athletes it was actually pretty moving when you talked about the way that you, uh, as a PJ, when at the moment of truth, would recite the pararescue creed. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about the, like the sort of situation in which you might have fi- found yourself doing that and using it as a way to calm yourself and get focused? Personally, I use it in, uh, in a, a number of situations. I mean... Uh, I think one of the ones that stands out uh, in particular uh, to me was actually an aircraft crash that we went to. They had uh, 12 guys on board, and uh, basically this was sort of an an unlikely event. Usually there are not a lot of survivors, when, uh, at least in combat, when the aircraft sort of uh, gets blown out of the air and crashes. But this was sort of different. They uh, landed, rolled the aircraft, and there were 12 people. Some of them were trapped inside. Some of them were thrown out that uh, needed emergent uh, care and extrication. And that's really overwhelming. I think when you see it for the first time, you're approached with this situation that most people are like, ah, it's never going to happen that way. You know, usually everybody's fine or it's just going to be a flaming hulk of, uh, of, of metal. When you see it for the first time, it, it really hits you and you're like, is this, is this really going on? And you need something as your heart rate starts to increase to sort of bring you back down, keep you calm, and keep you focused on, on the task at hand. So I, I distinctly remember that night uh, saying it to myself in my head right as we uh, unloaded the gear, set up the casualty collection point, and went to work. I'll tell you what, man. The the BTSF, Beat the Stressful, I actually find myself using that routinely when I'm awesome. on my way you know, in the aircraft to pick up a critically ill patient. Breathe, talk, see, focus. It works, man. Brilliant stuff. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad it helps. I think you did a fantastic job during the talk of translating the theoretical aspects of tactical breathing, mindfulness, concepts that many would consider quote-unquote woo-woo and translating that into a heuristic that is easy to remember and also easy to implement once you've gained that practice uh, and experience with it. Awesome. That was that was the goal, so I'm glad it's uh, I'm glad we kind of got there. Yeah, the other thing that I think is important to note is that 
In medicine, we oftentimes look at the science of what we do, and the science in regard to taking care of patients is something that's fairly routine, but there's a fair deal of science in regard to how we take care of patients and how we control our emotions and how we go through the decision-making process, which was very well discussed in this lecture. And another thought I had is, you know, as we get further along in our careers, we generally get better at doing what we do. And part of that is is clearly we just learn more pathophysiology, more procedural skill, etc. But I do think a big part of it is that we also, whether we think consciously about it or not, get better at exactly these sort of psychological skills. And that, I think, enables us to actually shift the curve to the left, if you will, in taking what would have otherwise early in our career been a code black situation and made it more of a prime performance sort of situation. So simultaneously, we had EMS fellow Dr. Drew Cathers presenting on blood products in HEMS, one program's experience. I will talk a little bit more about that subsequently. But after uh, Mike's talk, we also had Dr. Uh, Michael Franks of Boston MedFlight presenting the data on hyperoxia. Pull down that mask, oxygen as a lethal agent. I think, no offense, Mike, but I think Frakes actually beat you on the retweets today. <laughs> he, uh, he tore it up. Holy cow. Frakes is a tour de force of a lecture. The data he was presenting was deep, to say the least. He pulled the literature all the way back to the late 1700s, describing hyperoxia in various sorts of rodents and all sorts of mammals, and the consequences at the uh, molecular and microscopic level that they had observed even in the early 18th century. And I thought that was remarkable because when we talk about dogma, especially in EMS, it's the perpetuation of uh, practice year over year, generation after generation, despite an evidence base to support it. And using supplemental oxygen in disease states like stroke, in STEMI, in post-ROS cardiac arrest is something that is taught. And implicitly, as practitioners, we understand it to be you know, appropriate care. But he really did a great job of dogma lysis and bringing uh, that to the forefront when your patient is not hypoxic, adding extra oxygen causes significant damage, uh, obviously related to free radical formation. And I think that that's the key. And part of what has perpetuated the dogma and how we've actually been practicing is that we always feel as though oxygen administration to a patient really won't hurt. So we're going to just provide this for them just in case in order to make sure that they don't become hypoxic, which we also know is bad. So the demonstration and the understanding that not only might oxygen not help in many situations, but that it can actually hurt in many situations was a key part of his talk. I absolutely agree, Chris. Uh, oxygen is a drug, and I think it's important for us to remember that. For so many of the flight missions that I do, after I wrap it up, even if I had to do procedures and give multiple medications, when I really stop and think about what did I do on this flight that made the biggest impact for the patient? And when I think about what we actually have evidence for to answer that question, so often the answer is I took away their oxygen. 
I really think that one of my favorite things about listening to Michael talk is he always does an amazing job of balancing the microscopic with the macroscopic, balancing the the biochemistry at the cellular level with uh, sort of the macroscopic uh, larger approach to, to treating the patient in a way that doesn't throttle you over the head with so much uh, information that uh, you get lost or bored. And connecting those dots, I think, is very difficult and something you, you seldom see in, in a presenter, but he does it so well. And I also thought that often uh, when I hear a presentation, it, it's generally this sort of unilateral uh, oxygen is, is, is very bad. And, and the, the focus is on simply the fact that giving too much oxygen is bad, which is nice to know. But when Michael wrapped it up in the whole idea of treating oxygen like a drug and titrating it, this balanced approach to the idea, uh, I think it avoids the cognitive pendulum swinging uh, too much one way or too much the other way. Fair enough. So next up, we had Kevin Colopy uh, presenting in his home state of North Carolina on taking a timeout before initiating RSI and how that may improve patient safety as well as first attempt success when it comes to intubation. So we really enjoyed Kevin's chat, and I think he also um, brought back the importance of checklists. And this is something that some practitioners still have some resistance in adopting, but nevertheless, uh, time after time, study after study, implementing checklists, whether in the emergency department or pre-hospitally, significantly improves patient outcomes, decreases the incidence of uh, hypoxia as well as hypotension in your patient population and then goes along to improve your first pass success rate, which we know obviously dash 1A is the mantra we live by when we're intubating pre-hospitally. Yeah, I never heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think he did a great job of using the data and his own services practice uh, to incorporate these changes and then also using high fidelity simulation. There's a big difference between intubating a mannequin versus intubating a mannequin in a scenario where they are hypoxic, tachypnic, you're presenting a patient case of you know, failing COPD example, but nevertheless immersing yourself into the patient case, bringing that simulation to life, and implementing the heuristics as well as the checklist that you would use during your actual intubation and RSI. More so, he talks about the limitations of simulation in the sense that, you know, most folks talk about, all right, I'm going to set up capnography. I'm going to set up my suction. But in the sim lab, there are a few folks that actually go and do that. Why? Because we don't want to take the, you know, tools and equipment out of the wrapper because we may not be able to use it next time around. So it's that, you know, trying to be cheap in simulation, you're going to get what you pay for, right? Use the tools, drop the medications, administer them, run that simulation code like you're actually at a patient's bedside or home or in the helicopter, wherever it may be. I think the important thing as well that has come up a number of times during the day here um, is the use of checklists. And I think that, you know, traditionally um, we think of medicine as not only a science but an art. Um, and a lot of people are hesitant to use checklists in order to perhaps um, 
um, promote the idea that um, what we do is very simplistic to the point where it, it can be distilled down to a checklist. But the important thing is, is that when we're treating a patient, we have to have a good foundation to build from. And if you don't have the basics that are very solid, that are easily forgettable in the heat of the moment, you're not going to be able to build the rest of what we um, call the art of practicing medicine. So in a very stressful environment, the one that we practice in on our, in, um, on a regular basis, um, it just makes sense. It's been tried and true in many um, other industries as well, um, and a common theme throughout the day, I think. And uh, Kevin was kind enough to share his RSI checklist on Twitter, so certainly check out at AmpaDocs uh, for that list. Uh, it's freely available for those who are interested and want to participate or implement that regimen within their own practice. And again, in his service, they had six months of consecutive data with 100% uh, success rate. I think it was within three intubation attempts. and. Uh, first pass was 90% or greater, which is fantastic. We applaud their effort in being judicious and taking ego out of the equation and using a checklist. Next up, we had current chief resident, Woods Curry, and future, very exciting, EMS fellow at University of Cincinnati, presenting on Take a Deep Breath, Cutting Edge Therapies for Status Asthmaticus. I'll tell you what, guys. Once you get to the point in your career when you see somebody go from fledgling educator to giving a world-class talk at a national conference. It, it, it really fills you up with pride. And uh, Woods tore it up today. I think he brought up some great concepts. And when it comes to non-invasive positive pressure ventilation in your sick asthmatic patient, oftentimes uh, the mantra or dogma in emergency medicine is to poo-poo the idea of using BPAP, for example. Why? Because we don't have definitive data to show that it improves outcomes. Nevertheless, he really harnessed the research and brought up great points. One, your patient may certainly feel a lot more comfortable by adding a little bit of extrinsic PEEP. You greatly reduce their work of breathing and ultimately may prevent an ICU admission and certainly you may prevent an intubation. So again, while we may not have definitive data to show that it improves outcomes, if your patient is more comfortable, it may prevent an intubation and you're gonna have fewer ICU days, it's certainly something in the armamentarium uh, to consider when discussing status asthmaticus. And the armamentarium is something that Woods really went through in regards to your inhaled beta agonist proceeding to IV magnesium. We're not gonna get into the debate there, et cetera, et cetera. The other thing that I, I never understood until his talk today is why would it make sense for epi to be any better than albuterol? But he brought up the point that epinephrine can not only provide bronchodilation, but can actually decrease airway edema, which is not something that albuterol is gonna be able to provide that second part of decreasing airway edema. So. I really learned something there. In general, I just want to say that uh, I, I really love this talk because uh, I always love things that sort of fill in the gap and take off over where the basic, uh, the base of knowledge sort of ends. Because I think we find ourselves in these these predicaments on, a, especially in critical care transport, on a regular basis, where the standard albuterol, epinephrine. Uh, and uh, and whatnot, sort of. You're you're at the end of that algorithm. You still have someone who you're trying to avoid intubating, um, but you're 
at the end of the guidance. So exploring the things like CPAP, and I really love, this was probably the best explanation that, uh, that I've heard and seen of why CPAP works in asthma. And uh, I also uh, really enjoyed uh, some of the other things that he mentioned, uh, even if the evidence base was somewhat scarce, uh, giving me tools to put in my toolbox. Like I, he also mentioned the high flow nasal cannula, which I thought was uh, really good too. So all around, I thought was fantastic. Yeah, I agree. I think that most of us think of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation in regard to pulmonary edema and how well that works for that. Uh, we oftentimes will use it for other indications, but um, really the description of the concept of the extrinsic PEEP that you are administering to overcome the intrinsic PEEP that is going on in your patient or really hit home um, and uh, I think underscores the pathophysiology of why it can be so useful in these very critical patients that aren't responding to other interventions. So who gave the last talk of the day? Mm. <laughs> no idea. So very exciting to present some original research uh, sponsored in New Jersey State on ketamine-induced rapid sequence intubation. And we presented our, inherently our research on uh, shock index and using ketamine as a non-hemodynamically neutral agent. So the title of the study was Skeptic, Safety and Efficacy of Ketamine in Emergent Prehospital Tracheal Intubations. And the goal was to show an improved shock index, especially in our hypotensive cohort, because we know that there's controversy associated with etomidate, um, even as a single dose may cause uh, adrenal suppression uh, 24 to 48 hours in the ICU. So using ketamine as a feather in one's arsenal to selectively intubate my unstable or hemodynamically compromised patient is a great option. I think the, the one thing that I really took away from that was the ability to harness the side effects of ketamine in the favor of the patient. And that ketamine, um, unlike other uh, medications that we have um, uh, to sedate patients, really has additional effects that are beneficial for the patient in extreme shock. Uh, so I learned a number of things throughout this talk, um, but I think that that was the one thing that I really took away from it the most and something that I certainly will be disseminating uh, to the people I teach in the future. You, you put into words something that I have had in the back of my brain for a long time, which is atomidate is controversial, the whole steroid cortisol issue, and why even engage in the controversy? There's no need anymore once you've got ketamine. And by the way, I'm definitely going to hire you next time I need to think of an acronym for a study. <laughs> <laughs> Rock on, brother. Thank Kamikaze. You, Thank you, sir. Skeptic. We have a few uh, upcoming studies. The second one is going to be called Kamikaze, and the third one, once we're bulletproof when it comes to pre-hospital ketamine, is going to be called Kevlar. So certainly looking forward to that. And with that, we're going to wrap up day one of CCTMC. I hope you all enjoy this. Please stay tuned and follow on Twitter for day two. Please help retweet and get all this evidence-based medicine to your colleagues and friends back home. Follow AMP on Twitter. And we're going to be coming back tomorrow with a wrap-up on CCTMC Day 2. So stand by, guys. And make plans to make it to CCTMC 17 in San Antonio. 
Yeah, we have, uh, sp we, we have spoken about a few of the lectures here, but there were so many lectures throughout the day that were absolutely excellent. Uh, so if you are not coming to CCTMC, you're really missing out on a lot. So really make the effort to try to come. It is absolutely an awesome day filled with wonderful, wonderful people. Adios. Hasta. Wishing everyone a safe tour.